I don't remember it, but I've been told early in the early years of my life, I was baptized as an infant at St. Paul's United Church in Petrolia, Ontario. You see, my parents were God-fears, and they loved their children. They wanted to do all they could to give us every opportunity to succeed in this life. From their own personal experiences and understandings, based on what they had seen and been taught, good parents had their children baptized. And my parents, they wanted to be good parents. But then, in the summer between grades 12 and 13, I was invited to go on a week-long vacation with my girlfriend's family. I do not recall them saying anything about it being a church family camp. All I knew was that it was a holiday and with my girlfriend. Let me just say that they didn't have to ask twice. I was all in. But during that week of family camp, I heard and responded to the gospel. I admitted that I was a sinner. I thanked God for sending Jesus, and I told him that I believed that Jesus' death paid the price for my sin, and I was now trusting him alone for my salvation. And then I asked him to help me to live my life in a way that would please him, and not just for myself or for what I thought was right. At the end of the week of camp, I returned home, excited to share my newfound faith. Admittedly, maybe a little too excited at times. But I started attending the church my girlfriend and her family attended, reading the Bible, and attending as many Bible studies as I could. It was a steep learning curve, but my appetite was insatiable. Was it long before I was introduced to believer's baptism? As I recall it, my mother expressed some concern. You were already baptized. But my father reminded her that they had raised us to be independent decision makers. And so I was baptized. First as an infant and then as a 17-year-old. What's up with that? This morning, we are continuing the second of three Faith Basics messages. The first message of this Faith Basics series was focused on Bible intake, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating. I was reading a book earlier this week that referred to them as five basic ways to feed on the scriptures. And so in that first message of this three-message series, we were challenged to increase our feeding times, our exposures to God's Word. Remember, God did not give us the Bible to simply satisfy our curiosity or make us smarter. He gave us this written revelation to change the way we think and live, to transform us from the inside out. It's not about behavioral modification, but transformation so that we become more like and more like Jesus. I've titled this morning's presentation, A Believer's Baptism Q&A. But this Q&A will be a little different in that I will be both the questioner 
and the one who answers the questions. You can see all the questions I'll be attempting to answer listed on the Sermon Notes Bulletin insert that you hopefully received before you entered the worship center this morning. But let's pray, and then we'll begin making our way through these questions. Father, the Bible claims all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. May that become our testimony. May each and every one of us be equipped for every good work. Give us ears that hear and eyes that see and wills that are prepared to obey. Not because we feel coerced or as an attempt to win your favor, but as an expression of our love and appreciation for all that you have done for us. For it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. We want to be teachable, responsive, obedient, and faithful. Help us, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. They were being baptized, men and women alike. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Question number one. What is baptism? Or why is baptism? Let's start there. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. These words were spoken by Jesus following his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So this is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. And according to Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus, these are his final words to his most intimate ministry companions, the eleven. This passage of scripture is often referred to as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Parallel passages can be found in Mark chapter 16, verses 14 to 18, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49, and John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. All four gospel accounts. The fact that it is repeated in all four accounts suggests that this is a really significant passage of Scripture. Some would even include Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8 in this list as well. While we're here, you may want to take a pen and underline or highlight the word all as it appears in these verses. Verse 18, all authority has been given to me. Verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Additionally, 
If you haven't already, you may want to underline or highlight that phrase, make disciples. That is the imperative in this sentence. Jesus assumed that they would go. Perhaps a better English translation from the Greek would read, Therefore, as you are going, make disciples. We've actually plagiarized verse 19 and made it our Rock Community Church mission statement. It's posted in the glass cabinet in the foyer. Our mission, we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And notice, Jesus informed them, and as a result, us as well, how disciples of Jesus Christ are to be made. It involves two steps. First, they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And second, they are to be taught to observe, in other words, to keep, to watch over, to guard, to obey all that Jesus had commanded them. By the way, don't miss the implications here, implications here for us as a church. A church that claims to exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ. You've heard me say it, and I pray it often, that the Rock Community Church would become an equipping center for God's people. According to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, that ought to be our primary preoccupation, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Whatever else we do, it's secondary. Teaching the word of God and helping each other to observe it, to obey it, that should be our number one priority if we are going to continue to become the church God is calling us to be. And so according to verse 19, we baptize because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has commanded us to baptize. This is one of two ordinances or decreed ceremonies given directly by Jesus to his followers. The other, of course, is the Lord's Supper found in Matthew chapter 26 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now the Roman Catholic Church refers to these decreed ceremonies as sacraments. They believe and teach that the sacraments are a means of receiving God's grace. These ceremonies function like conduits or pipelines given to the church to convey God's grace to all participants, regardless of their faith. Now, there are other Protestant groups that will sometimes use this term sacrament, but they do not believe nor teach that baptism and the Lord's Supper is a means of conveying God's grace. We here at the Rock Community Church 
refer to them as ordinances because they were ordained or commanded or instituted by Jesus himself. Question number two. What is baptism? Let me begin with what baptism is not. Baptism is not a way to win God's favor, approval, or acceptance. Baptism is not a means of salvation or regeneration. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 reads, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Baptism is not a prerequisite for becoming a child of God. John chapter 1 verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Finally, baptism is not a requirement for becoming part of the capital C church. The moment we place our trust in Jesus Christ alone, we become children of God and part of the universal church consisting of all genuine believers, past, present, and future, from every nation. So that is what baptism is not. But what is it? I've already mentioned that it is an ordinance. Secondly, it is a symbol. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we, so we too might walk in newness of life. This passage is not talking about water baptism, but spiritual baptism. It is describing a spiritual reality that takes place in the life of someone who has died or repented of sin, and are now trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. When we do that, we're uniting spiritually with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection, so that in the power of the indwelling spirit, we are now enabled to, notice the end of the verse 4, walk in newness of life. In other words, in a way that pleases God and honors him. Eugene Peterson, in his interpretive translation of these verses, makes the connection to the symbolism of water baptism, perhaps more explicitly than the Apostle Paul originally intended. 
but it is still a legitimate connection. Listen as I read. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in, in our new grace-sovereign country. You know, Colossians chapter 2, verse 12 affirms this same imagery. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Water baptism pictures a spiritual reality that has taken place in the believer's life. So water baptism on its own does absolutely nothing for us or to us. In the same way, wearing a wedding ring does not make you married. Water baptism is intended to symbolize a spiritual reality that has already taken place in the individual's life. On a more personal note, baptism is an act of obedience. Baptism is a public proclamation and visible demonstration of the gospel. Baptism is an act of identification with Jesus' death and resurrection and also with his ecclesia, the church, the community of called out ones. Baptisms are joyful celebrations when local church families can come together and celebrate a new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 reads, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So it's not just the angels in heaven that celebrate when someone who is lost has been found, when someone starts trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. We too can celebrate. Question number three, how do we baptize? Here at the Rock Community Church, we choose to practice baptism by immersion. There's actually a tank that we fill with water located behind this screen. Here are three reasons why we choose to baptize by immersion. Number one, because it best represents the literal meaning of the Greek word translated baptize. In the original language, the word is baptizo, which means to plunge, to dip in or underwater, to immerse. Of the 82 times baptizo appears in the New Testament, 61 times people are going under the water. Fourteen times they are navigating their way through an ordeal, something like suffering. And 17 times it is referring to being baptized into the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we baptize by immersion 
because it is, at the very least, implied in the water baptisms recorded in the New Testament. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 to 39, provides a classic example. There we read of an Ethiopian, there we read of a eunuch who asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or someone else? You see, this eunuch had been to Jerusalem. Somehow he got his hands on a scroll of the book of Isaiah, and he's returning home, and he runs into Philip, and he asks him, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? So beginning with this same scripture, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Thirdly, we baptize by immersion because baptism by immersion is the best way to illustrate what happens in a person's life as we've already read in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. When we, by faith, start trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, We are identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Water baptism is a most graphic depiction of that spiritual reality. I was a first-generation believer in my family. My young brother, wanting to be supportive, attended Cynthia's baptism, my future wife's baptism. I was away at school in Saskatchewan, And so my brother attended this baptism service. There were probably five, six, seven, eight people baptized that evening. But it was on the way home from that service when he pulled his car off to the shoulder of the road and asked for God's forgiveness and help to start living in a way that would please him. You know, I can never participate in a baptism service without thinking of my brother's conversion. Baptism services are a powerful picture of the gospel. Let me clarify before we move on that if you were baptized as a believer by a different mode, sprinkling or pouring, we do not require you to be rebaptized by immersion here at the Rock Community Church. Some people, however, may have been baptized earlier in their life, as I was. In such cases, we see infant baptism as an expression of the parent's faith. Or maybe you did not truly understand the significance of baptism at the time. Everybody else was doing it, all your friends. It was what was expected of you. Or perhaps... You'd not yet truly repented and received Jesus Christ as your Savior. In any of those cases, it is important for you to be rebaptized as a public profession 
of your genuine faith. Question number four, who should be baptized? The short answer, believers and only believers. Recently, I heard this lament. Probably we have one of the largest populations of unbaptized professing Christians in the history of the church. While at the same time, we have this large population of unregenerate baptized people. Beloved, that is both cause for concern and for much confusion. Infant or pedo-baptism has not been helpful in this regard. But let's examine the pattern that emerged as Christianity was spreading throughout the known world. The New Testament church was being established as reported in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, reads, Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. So on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men and women believed and were baptized. Acts chapter 8 Verses 12 to 13. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 34 to 39. We've already read this account of the Ethiopian eunuch. He believed and asked to be baptized. Acts chapter 9, verses 17 to 18. Saul, later renamed Paul, was baptized three days after his dramatic encounter with Jesus and conversion while on his way to Damascus to persecute Christ's followers. Acts chapter 10, verses 46 to 48. It's an interesting passage. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and the other circumcised believers were compelled to baptize, believing Spirit-filled Gentiles for the very first time. A new day was dawning in redemptive history. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Lady by the name of Lydia opened her heart and her household were baptized. Later in the same chapter, verses 31 to 33, we have the Philippian jailer and his household responding to Paul and Silas' message to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And they were baptized. One more. Acts chapter 18, verses 7 to 8. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing 
and being baptized. Let me try to summarize some of the key takeaways from these historic examples found in the book of Acts. Number one, belief always precedes water baptism. That's why we use the qualifier, believer's baptism. Secondly, baptism followed immediately after they believed. Thirdly, baptism was a public act of identification with the followers of Jesus. This was never intended to be a private celebration among a few close family members or friends. I can't believe the Ethiopian was traveling alone. There must have been others even at that baptism. Number four, belief is the only qualifier. Nothing is said about age or spiritual maturity or reading through the Bible or church attendance or attending a baptism class. Trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation is the only biblical requirement. Believer's baptism is, to, is intended to be a first step launching a lifetime of obedience in which believers are working out their salvation for it is God who is at work in them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. This may be a, the time to quickly explain why we do child dedications rather than infant or pedobaptisms. Listen, God loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. One of my favorite Bible stories involving Jesus is found in Mark chapter 10 when his disciples were trying to protect him from the parents who were bringing their little ones so that he might touch them. Jesus actually became quite angry with his disciples. Verse 16 reads, Then he took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. God, dressed in human flesh, demonstrated his love for little children. And in Christ, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us, both adults and children, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died to pay the price for our sin, the just for the unjust, to bring us, all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, even those not yet born, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18. You know, I pray for our grandchildren and the children that are part of this church family on a regular basis, that they would grow as Jesus grew. Luke chapter 2, verse 52. In wisdom and stature, favor with God and man. And I also pray that early in their lives, God would draw them to himself so that they would recognize their own depravity, repent, and believe, 
trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Here are a couple of reasons why we don't teach or practice infant baptism. Number one, there is no mention of infants ever being baptized anywhere in Scripture. Secondly, infant baptism is not the baptism of the New Testament. Infants are incapable of the repentance and belief that is to precede baptism. Thirdly, infant baptism is not the New Testament replacement for Old Testament circumcision given to the nation of Israel as a sign of the Old Covenant. Believers and only believers should be baptized. That's why we refer to water baptism as believer's baptism. Question number five. What are some of the benefits of being baptized? Let me give you four benefits very quickly. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list, but it may give you a gentle push if you're still sitting on the fence wondering about baptism. First of all, our baptism becomes a forever reminder of our rebirth and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. In this sense, it is like the Old Testament circumcision ceremony. You may want to check out Genesis chapter 17, verses 11 to 12. I remember reading of a leader in a parachurch organization who lived out in the West Coast. He took his 12-year-old son on a hike up a mountain near their home about a week before his 13th birthday. When they reached the summit, they stopped to rest before heading back down. The dad asked his son if he was aware of just how much he loved him. The son affirmed his dad's love for him, and he assured him that they had a great relationship as far as he was concerned. The dad then removed a stake and a hammer from his knapsack. He went on to explain that in the years ahead, their relationship may hit some turbulent times, as they often do through those teenage years. He wanted them to drive this stake in the ground so that when they hit those difficult times, and his son might be tempted to question his father's love for him, he would remember this day and the stake that they drove in the ground and that the love that they had affirmed for one another. You know, baptism can be like that, like driving a stake in the ground, a constant reminder of what God has done for you. Secondly, there is joy and blessing that accompanies obedience. James chapter 1, verse 25 reads, But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Thirdly, it affirms our identity in Christ and union with him. Jot down Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You can look that up later. The fourth benefit of 
baptism, it provides an opportunity for us to share our testimony, our story with others. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 20. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Baptism gives us an opportunity to make that appeal. Question number six. When should a believer be baptized? As soon as they, in an act of faith, start trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And on a more practical note, let me give you four C's. Communicate, credibility, clarity, and confidence. Communicate your desire to be baptized to the elders here at the Rock Community Church. They'll sit down with you and help you to prepare. Credibility. You need to have a credible and believable testimony. And they will help you articulate that. Clarity. A clear understanding of what you're doing and saying is essential. And finally, confidence. Confidence that your life displays consistent evidence, not perfection, of a genuine spiritual life. That gives you confidence in your relationship with God. Can I just say that a child who is old enough to understand the significance of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone can be baptized. However, and I'm speaking as your pastor now, it may be preferable to wait until the evidence of their faith has been sufficiently tested in order to preserve the significance of this public act of obedience and commitment. Question number seven. Why should a believer be baptized? Just quickly, Jesus was baptized. He did not need to be. There was no sin for which he needed to be repentant of. But he was baptized because he wanted to identify with us. Jesus commanded it. That should be enough in and of itself. The apostles taught it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And then the early church practiced it, believer's baptism. Question number eight, so what about you? They're being baptized, men and women alike. Acts chapter eight, verse 12. If you've never been baptized as a believer, what is preventing you from being obedient to Jesus' command? Come and talk to me. Any of the elders, we would consider it 
a privilege and be delighted to sit down and have that discussion with you. Believers' baptisms are celebrations, demonstrations, and proclamations of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 reads, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, I can't think of a better way to fulfill these verses than when we gather together to witness believers' baptisms. They are unquestionably one of my favorite times as a church family. Believers' baptisms are not just meaningless ritual or an act of coerced obedience, another check on your to-do list. It is a first major act of obedience to Christ, a public announcement to both God and others in the context of your local church family. I belong to Christ, and from this point on, by God's power, I intend to walk in obedience to him. And that, my beloved, is a privilege to be embraced. Let's pray.